Chapter One, Part Six of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter One, by way of introduction. Part Six, the materials of American. One familiar with the habits of pedagogues need not be told that in their grudging discussions of American, they have spent most of their energies upon vain attempts to classify its materials. White and Lonesbury, as I have shown, carried the business to the limits of the preposterous. When they had finished identifying and cataloging Americanisms, there were no more Americanisms left to study. The ladies and gentlemen of the American Dialect Society. Though praiseworthy for their somewhat deliberate industry, fall into a similar fault, for they are so eager to establish minute dialectic variations that they forget the general language almost altogether. Among investigators of less learning, there is a more spacious view of the problem, and the laboured categories of White and Lonesbury are much extended. Pickering, the first to attempt a list of Americanisms, rehearsed their origin under the following headings: one. We have formed some new words. Two, to some old ones that are still in use in England, we have affixed new significations. Three, others which have long been obsolete in England are still retained in common use among us. Bartlett, in the second edition of his dictionary, dated eighteen fifty nine, increased these classes to nine. One, archaisms, that is. Old English words obsolete or nearly so in England, but retained in use in this country. Two, English words used in a different sense from what they are in England. These include many names of natural objects differently applied. Three, words which have retained their original meaning in the United States, though not in England. Four, English provincialisms adopted into general use in America. Five. Newly coined words, which owe their origin to the productions or to the circumstances of the country. Six, words borrowed from European languages, especially the French, Spanish, Dutch, and German. Seven, Indian words. Eight, Negroisms. Nine, peculiarities of pronunciation. Some time before this, but after the publication of Bartlett's first edition in eighteen forty-eight. William C. Fowler, professor of rhetoric at Amherst, devoted a brief chapter to American dialects in his well-known work on English, and in it one finds the following formidable classification of Americanisms: one, words borrowed from other languages, a, Indian, as Kennebec, Ohio, Tombigbee, Sagamore, Quahog, Succotash; b, Dutch, as Boss, Cruller, Stoop. C. German, as spook, s p u k e, sauerkraut. D. French, as bayou, cash, c a c h e, shoot, c h u t e, crevasse, levy. E. Spanish, as calaboose, chaparral, hacienda, rancho, ranchero. F. Negro, as buckra. Two. Words introduced from the necessity of our situation in order to express new ideas. A. 
words connected with and flowing from our political institutions, as selectmen, presidential, congressional, caucus, mass meeting, lynch law, help for servants. B. Words connected with our ecclesiastical institutions, as associational, consociational, to fellowship, to missionate. C. Words connected with a new country, as lot, diggings, betterments, squatter. 3. Miscellaneous Americanisms. A. Words and phrases become obsolete in England, as talented, offset, for set off, back and forth, for backward and forward. B. Old words and phrases, which are now merely provincial in England, as hub, wap, to wilt. C. Nouns formed from verbs by adding the French suffix meant, as publishment, releasement, requirement. D. Forms of words which fill the gap or vacancy between two words which are approved, as obligate, between oblige and obligation, and variate, between vary and variation. E. Certain compound terms for which the English have different compounds, as bank bill for bank note, bookstore for bookseller's shop, bottom land for interval land, clapboard for pail, seaboard for seashore, side hill for hillside. F. Certain colloquial phrases, apparently idiomatic and very expressive, as to cave in, to flare up, to flunk out, to fork over, to hold on, to let on, to stave off, to take on. G. Intensives, often a matter of mere temporary fashion, as dreadful, mighty, plaguy, powerful. H. Certain verbs expressing one's state of mind, but partially or timidly, as to allot upon, for to count upon, to calculate, to expect, to think or believe, to guess, to reckon. I. Certain adjectives expressing not only quality, but one's subjective feelings in regard to it, as clever, grand, green, likely, smart, ugly. J. Abridgments, as stage for stagecoach, turnpike for turnpike road, spry for sprightly, to conduct for to conduct oneself. K. Quaint or burlesque terms, as to tote, to yank, humbug, loafer, muss, plunder for baggage, rock for stone. L. Low expressions mostly political, as slangwanger, locofoco, hunker, to get the hang of. M. Ungrammatical expressions, disapproved by all, as do-don't, used to could, can't come it, universal preacher, for universalist. There's no two ways about it. Elwin, in 1859, attempted no classification, he confined his glossary to archaic English words surviving in America, and sought only to prove that they had come down from our remotest ancestry, and were thus undeserving of the reviling lavished upon them by English critics. Shell de Vere, in 1872, followed Bartlett, 
and devoted himself largely to words borrowed from the Indian dialects and from the French, Spanish, and Dutch. But Farmer, in 1889, ventured upon a new classification, prefacing it with the following definition. An Americanism may be defined as a word or phrase, old or new, employed by general or respectable usage in America in a way not sanctioned by the best standards of the English language. As a matter of fact, however, the term has come to possess a wider meaning, and it is now applied not only to words and phrases which can be so described, but also to the new and legitimately born words adapted to the general needs and usages, to the survivals of an older form of English than that now current in the mother country, and to the racy, pungent vernacular of Western life. He then proceeded to classify his materials thus. 1. Words and phrases of purely American derivation, embracing words originating in a. Indian and Aboriginal life, b. Pioneer and frontier life, c. The church, d. Politics, e. Trades of all kinds, f. Travel, afloat and ashore. 2. Words brought by colonists, including a. The German element, b. The French, c. The Spanish, d. The Dutch, e. The Negro, f. The Chinese. 3. Names of American things, embracing a. Natural products, b. Manufactured articles. 4. Perverted English words. 5. Obsolete English words still in good use in America. 6. English words American by inflection and modification. 7. Odd and ignorant popular phrases, proverbs, vulgarisms, and colloquialisms, cant and slang. 8. Individualisms. 9. Doubtful and miscellaneous. Clappen, in 1902, reduced these categories to four. 1. Genuine English words, obsolete or provincial in England, and universally used in the United States. 2. English words conveying, in the United States, a different meaning from that attached to them in England. 3. Words introduced from other languages than the English, French, Dutch, Spanish, German, Indian, etc. 4. Americanisms proper, that is, words coined in the country, either representing some new idea or peculiar product. Thornton, in 1912, substituted the following. 1. Forms of speech, now obsolete or provincial in England, which survive in the United States, such as allow, bureau, fall, gotten, guess, likely, professor, shote. 2. Words and phrases of distinctly American origin, such as belittle, lengthy, lightning rod, to darken one's doors, to bark up the wrong tree, to come out at the little end of the horn, blind tiger, cold snap, gay Quaker, gone coon, long sauce, pay dirt, small potatoes, some pumpkins. 3. Nouns which indicate quadrupeds, birds, trees, articles of food, etc., that are distinctively American, such as groundhog, hangbird, hominy, live oak, locust, opossum, persimmon, pone, succotash, wampum, wigwam. 4. Names of persons and classes of persons and of places, such as buckeye, cracker, greaser, hoosier, 
Old Bullion, Old Hickory, The Little Giant, Dixie, Gotham, The Bay State, The Monumental City. 5. Words which have assumed a new meaning, such as card, clever, fork, help, penny, plunder, raise, rock, sack, ticket, windfall. In addition, Thornton added a provisional class of words and phrases of which I have found earlier examples in American than in English writers, with the caveat that further research may reverse the claim. A class offering specimens in alarmist, capitalize, eruptiveness, horse of another color, the jigs up, nameable, omnibus bill, propaganda, and whitewash. No more than a brief glance at these classifications is needed to show that they hamper the inquiry by limiting its scope. Not so much to be sure as the ridiculous limitations of White and Lounsbury, but still very seriously. They meet the ends of purely descriptive lexicography, but largely leave out of account some of the most salient characters of a living language, for example, pronunciation and idiom. Only Bartlett and Farmer establish a separate category of Americanisms produced by changes in pronunciation, though even Thornton, of course, is obliged to take notice of such forms as bust and bile. None of them, however, goes into the matter at any length, nor even into the matter of etymology. Bartlett's etymologies are scanty and often inaccurate. Shell de Vere's are sometimes quite fanciful. Thornton offers scarcely any at all. The best of these collections of Americanisms, and by long odds, is Thornton's. It presents an enormous mass of quotations, and they are all very carefully dated, and it corrects most of the more obvious errors in the work of earlier inquirers. But its very dependence upon quotations limits it chiefly to the written language, and so the enormously richer materials of the spoken language are passed over, and particularly the materials evolved during the past twenty years. One searches the two fat volumes in vain for such highly characteristic forms as would of, near accident, and budinsky, the use of sure as an adverb, and the employment of well as a sort of general equivalent of the German also. These grammatical and syntactical tendencies are beyond the scope of Thornton's investigation, but it is plain that they must be prime concerns of any future student who essays to get at the inner spirit of the language. Its difference from standard English is not merely a difference in vocabulary, to be disposed of in an alphabetical list. It is, above all, a difference in pronunciation, in intonation, in conjugation and declension, in metaphor and idiom, in the whole fashion of using words. A page from one of Ring W. Lardner's baseball stories contains few words that are not in the English vocabulary and yet the thoroughly American color of it cannot fail to escape anyone who actually listens to the tongue spoken around him. Some of the elements which enter into that color will be considered in the following pages. The American vocabulary, of course, must be given first attention, for in it the earliest American divergences are embalmed, and it tends to grow richer and freer year after year. But attention will also be paid to materials and ways of speech that are less obvious, and in particular to certain definite tendencies of the grammar of spoken American, hitherto wholly neglected. End of chapter 1, part 6